Welcome back, or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and we are joined by frequent co-host Brett Hornig for another edition of the Long Run Archives. In this episode, we cover a lot of topics, including the Cocodona 250, the Mammoth Trail Fest, recent issues in athlete-sponsor relationships, Killian Journey's thoughts on the competitive landscape, our Strava finds of the week, and more. Let's get started. So, I was telling you offline, I think I've been stoked about this episode ever since we started prepping for it. And one thing before we start, I recently learned that when you were an undergrad at uh, Southern Oregon University, you did your final project on how to start a running store. Did I get that correct? Yeah, for the for the business major at SOU, you basically have to create an entire business plan. And like to get an A, you should be able to just present the business plan to like an investor or a bank and get a business loan. So I mean, of course, I did a running store. I'd worked in them and was already working at one. So know the ins and outs enough where I saw a, a spot in the, you know, East Bay area where you could totally throw a store. And I was like, this is this is how it could work. And they liked it. Maybe we'll go in depth on the economics of running stores and trail specialty stores on a future episode. But I was just interested because there's been a lot of talk in the Salt Lake community about building a trail specific running store here along the Wasatch Front, especially one that's really close to trails because our current stores, they're more road running focused and they're adjacent to Highway 15, which is like so far from the trails and they're not so much community hubs. So anyways, it's just interesting. Yeah, that is actually a little bit amazing that there isn't a store that even like has an emphasis on trail, you know, over there that's, you know, say close to trails. I mean, I guess that's always, you know, usually, I guess, easier said than done. But I mean, having just been through like San Francisco Run Company over in Marin, like yeah, two weeks ago, and then Rogue Valley Runners here in Ashland, like it, it can definitely be done. And like, it takes a ton of work and you got to be like all in. But but when you when there's that right person to do it, it's so cool. Like you just said, huge opportunity, kind of a shocker. And there are a couple people in the community that are like seriously considering starting one up, I think like as early as this summer or fall, but I'm still haunted every single night by that Ryan Gelfie tweet a couple weeks back that said, if Salt Lake City doesn't become the mecca for American trail running within the next five years, someone there messed it up. And I feel like uh, now yeah, is the time to amass the resources because you need that. That's the hub, right? That's the community hub. Anyways, I've been talking too much. Let's start with the Cocodon 250. You said that this was the first year you started seriously following it why yeah i mean i've like last year i kind of or was it last did they do the race last this is year year two, two? Yeah, this I is year two okay but was it was last year the first year or has there been like a gap in years i like my like pandemic timeline is all jacked up maybe they were going to start it in 2020 but i know that last year for sure okay. was the first year and like michael versteeg won okay. and yeah 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 i mean i like i i knew when it started and then I did not pay attention really at all until someone crossed the finish line. And then I looked and I was like, wow, that's nuts. And then kind of that was that was it for me. But then this year, I definitely paid attention to it a little bit more. And I think one of the biggest reasons why was because of the free trail fantasy picks. I mean, that, gate, that I got to build my little team and get like fully invested in you know, some people that maybe I had never heard of before, but then it forced me to like check their race history, see what they were doing. And then, you know, submit my picks. I mean, that's a big responsibility to, you know, draft a team. And 
then then I was all in and I you know I was checking checking up on the the live streams and the live tracking like a couple times a day until people were crossing the finish line a huge hat tip to free trail I know we talked a couple episodes ago about the idea of betting in trail running and this is something slightly different, but just anything we can do to increase buy-in from fans to follow the coverage, I think is great for the sport. And this, in my mind, rises to the top as the best example currently. Like you just said, it it made you want to check in on a regular basis, and uh, yeah, it's- yeah, it was really it was fun. And then I mean, and then the other thing that I just noticed, um, I don't know how many people were checking in, just exactly like me, but. Every time I popped up just YouTube to see like what the air vibe, every single time I hopped on there, they were live, mm-hmm. which so impressive right there. Like they were live for, I don't know if they were live the whole time, but they were live every single time I opened up YouTube. And then every time I clicked their live link, there was at least 500 people it's impressive. watching yeah. every single time. Yeah, Like that blew my mind. I just didn't think, I thought there would be a bigger dip. Um, just throughout the middle parts of the race but like I, you know i hopped on at one point and we're watching uh joe uh who was in the lead i think he was like 110 or 120 miles in he was running on some single track and he was running really well but there was like 600 people watching that feed and just awesome fun stuff going in the chat but yeah i couldn't believe how much just active coverage there was and how many and it just goes to show i mean if you if you do it like if you make that kind of coverage like people are going to watch it yep there a couple things on my wish list for future live streams you talked about you are sorry maybe you posed the question of what's a good sweet spot for media coverage especially in a race as long as Cocodona. i would love to see some sort of like nightly recap or half day recap where if you miss like six or eight Mm -hmm. hours of coverage or an entire day similar to how sports center has like their recurring on the hour uh ticker and like recap of what's happened during the day there's some saved video file that you can go to where the announcers say here's what you missed here here are the changes they're gonna start playing they're gonna play the national anthem they're gonna sound the cannons we're gonna figure out who our fallen were over the course of the day like full hunger game style give us a little recap you know show their faces and the mile mark yeah. Um, but then maybe also talk a little bit about who's actually still in the race. But that was definitely the first thing that came to mind when you said like the nightly recap. I was like, oh, yeah, we're turning trail running into Hunger Games. <laughs> yeah, because it'd be cool to know like, you know, who who DNF'd and who has fallen back because of like nutrition issues or whatever, or just like tired legs. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Who got stung by hornets. And I still may, <laughs> who got stung by, yeah, who succumbed to the desert. I still think it would be interesting to submit content that had been filmed before the race into certain parts of the coverage. So like, let's say that there's some surprise runner that came out of nowhere that's now, you know, in a podium position or leading the race, maybe someone from their family or their entourage got like YouTube coverage of them in during training or in previous races. And you can submit that to the announcers and, and they can pull it up side by side to the live coverage of them running somewhere on the course. I just think it would like add another layer of entertainment and engagement with the fans. And I've been saying that for a couple of weeks now, but to me, that's like the next evolution in live coverage is additional content to tell the story of these runners too. Yeah. It would be pretty cool to have like a, like a runner approved Dropbox of media that they, you know, 
friends and family or approved people can just submit stuff to yeah. to like Jamil, and then they can just feed like you know scan through it as they're going. They have plenty of time. Um, you know, that's not to say that they're not doing anything out there, but like they could have one person scanning this uh, media Dropbox that's getting stuff thrown in, so that way when some person who no one's heard of is all of a sudden moving up into like the top five, they can shoot some things up there and be like, oh, okay, you know, let's tell some of the, the fans of the sport who this is, what they're doing, where they came from. That would be awesome. Because I think the closest equivalent we have right now is like with Western states where you submit what you want uh, Tropical John Manager to say about you as you cross the finish line. Like, oh, this is, you know, Finn Melanson, 30 years old from Salt Lake City, Utah. He likes to eat Doritos while he's running. You can just insert those like fun facts to the announcer or something like that, along with whatever content, and it can be played mid-race. Anyways, okay, I got to ask you one question. Given that you're a coach in the sport, do you have any idea about what it's going to take to coach any of your future athletes for these kind of races, if they ever decide to go for the Moab 240 or the Cocodona 250 or any of these new 200 milers that are gaining momentum in our sport? I mean, I just, I don't, I don't think there's been enough people to do them for there to be like a way to train for it. Um, You know, and I haven't even gotten to talk to that many people who've done things this long, but so far the, the trends that I've come across in terms of like, how do you have success at this is be really good at eating make sure that you are very good with huge amounts of time on your feet and don't stop for that long. Like that's been, those have been like, uh, I guess where I've talked about a long effort like this the most is like, I've had a bunch of friends who've done the John Muir trail and like tried to get FKTs or set FKTs on it. And like, those have been some of the main keys to success is like, you need to be okay like not sleeping for three, four days, you know, like 10, 20 minute power nap here and there and, and be really good at surviving. And like, I don't know how much of that comes into being really fit or super good at running. Like I know that's definitely going to be an element, but then there's some other element of being really good at surviving that I have currently right now, like not enough confidence to coach someone for Mm. but i would definitely be up for trying to learn everything i can about you know what it takes and i feel like you know part of it too is as the race gets longer the 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 correct answer is going to be super different from person to person um just like like for a hundred miler like the way for someone to top 10 at western states um everyone's still doing super different things i imagine that's only going to get like blown up even more over the course of 200 250 mile races well one thing i'm curious about is will we ever pinpoint a distance in our sport where athletic ability no longer really matters or plays a dominant factor and certain intangibles or psychological characteristics start to take importance is it the 250 mile distance is it longer? Because one thing that interested me about the results here, and I haven't seen Annie Hughes' Strava data yet, but I know on the men's side, mm-hmm. Joe McConaughey, his GAP only slipped two or three minutes per mile into the second day, which interested me. Like, yeah, like the dude just, he just keeps going. Yeah. And like, it's not like he runs 400 miles a week and then he, and then he 
is like, oh yeah, 200 miles, no big deal. Like, yeah, I, I don't, yeah, I'm so, I would want to, we got we to gotta cut him in half and see what kind of physiology is going on there. Well, he's coming on the pod early next week. We're recording next Tuesday and he has three or four significant long trail FKTs. And I know a lot of people that have had those at some point and they often talk about a couple of years after the fact, their endocrine systems are like totally toast and just all sorts of other, just like, you know, yeah. hazy medical issues. And this guy keeps going. Like, it seems like he just gets either he stays the same or he gets a little bit better. And I'm amazed. So there's, yeah, it doesn't seem to trash him. Like it, you know, it beats, a, he does a 200, 300 mile effort and his recovery is the same as someone doing a hundred mile or a hundred K that I, I don't understand. Like I'm, I mean, there's gotta be a little, a little genetics going in there, but yeah, something, something awesome's going on there that I want to get to the bottom of. Well, the last thing here, there's a podcast called ultra running history, something like that. A guy named Davy Crockett. I don't know if that's his pen name or real name does the show. And he mentions that the roots of at least like modern day American competitive ultra running date back to the mid 19th century. And it's very close to this 250 mile format. Like the most popular event back in the day was these multi-day efforts, like four, five, six days. How long could you go for? And I think it's cool that that's starting to come full circle and there's some fanfare around it i think it's great reality tv i think it becomes a soap opera there's so many emotions on display and so many things can happen in the race i mean there's just with more distance more time span there's more opportunities for just crazy things to happen and i think it's also really interesting when not necessarily the best athletes but maybe more mentally tough people have a chance to shine so there's just a lot of cool things here and it's cool that 150 years later it's coming back into consciousness yeah, I mean, I don't, yeah, we'll see if we can ever get to that sort of popularity because I mean, it's, it's you know, it's like it's, it's attention span, and that that's kind of all relative. Like, even back then, like people are sitting on a boat for like a month to get across the ocean. So like watching a six day race of people walking around the block for six days, like that's still that's pretty short. Whereas like right now, the current attention span of athletics is like ten second hundred meter dash. And even that's like barely long, like that's almost too long for the average consumer. Like they, then they were like, well, what about the 40 yard dash? And it's like, <laughs> I, I would love to see that swing in uh, attention span and patience, uh, start to happen a little bit. Um, it's like six days, bro. I was on yeah. the Mayflower. <laughs> exactly. Like, like six days. That's, that's a sprint. Like if you can do that in one push, like it's not that long. And the prize money was good. Like, I think there was one in New York, you know, back in the like 18, like late 1800s, early 1900s. That was, I think, six days of walking around a block. And, you know, winner got the equivalent today of like, like, like 50 grand. Or oh, something no, like I think it was six figures. I think that they got paid. Oh, right. They got paid. That's, yeah, that's better than any ultra. Anyways. Out there by a landslide. Let's talk about the Mammoth Trail Fest. So Tim Tollefson obviously a, a, a very important person on the mountain ultra trail running scene. He is hopping into the race directing space. He's building this, I think it's like a two or three day ultra running festival in his hometown mm -hmm. of Mammoth Lakes, California. There, there's a lot I want to talk about here. I think you probably have the most interesting things to say though. So what are your initial thoughts? 
I mean, my first initial thought was, wait a minute, there's no races in Mammoth? Like, I mean, maybe there are, but there's no, like, big races in Mammoth? Right. It seems like there should there should be races in places that are really awesome to run in, and Mammoth is one of those places. So that was just a little bit surprising that there wasn't a major event there. Um, it was also interesting, like, when, when I saw it first pop up on Twitter, like, the first comment was like, oh, no, it's the same weekend as yada yada. And it's like, I mean, that's kind of how that's been that's been kind of an increasing i don't know problem or issue with old trail races and new trail races and some trail races have had to move when the race normally is due to like you know environmental factors so now there's a lot there's a lot of races in the fall there's a lot of races in the spring like there's going to be that kind of overlap um but like at the same time like some of these older races, like, I don't know if all races, once you start it, like, is it going to be a forever sort of thing? Mm. How, how long should a race be a race for before it's done its job and maybe something else comes and does its job maybe, maybe better, maybe worse, but just differently? Mm. Like how long, how long should a race be a race? Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm stealing your thunder here because I know you mentioned this offline, but Anytime you are starting a new race, you're effectively competing with any other race in our sport within like a plus or minus three week radius of the event. So I, I think I saw on Twitter, for example, someone raised the point that like the Flagstaff Sky Peaks race is the same weekend. And so it's just interesting that, you know, it's tough to break through and you're going to have to be stepping on some toes and you're going to force runners to pick and choose and build schedules around stuff. And maybe it goes back to your point of like, how long is a race supposed to remain relevant for or playing a certain role in the sport? It's all very interesting. Yeah, definitely. And, and it sounds like Mammoth Trail Fest, they're not just putting on a race as like an attempt at a money grab, right. you know, or something like that. Like it feels like, there needs to be more reason than that, like for a trail race, for sure. Like, and you're like most trail races don't make money. Um, you know, a lot of them are nonprofits and they go to helping support the community that the race is held, whether that's, you know, building trails yeah. um, or those sorts of things. And it sounds like, you know, that's what Amoth Trail Fest is trying to do, um, you know, and just kind of bring some tr breathe some trail life from like a tourism standpoint into the mammoth area which uh you know tim seems like the right the right guy to to kind of spearhead that because he has been to he's been to a lot of races some very small ones and some huge ones um in many different places and you know that that's going to be helpful in regards to knowing which people to ask for advice for you know what do you think of this for the race um as well as just structuring out the events and kind of the agenda for the weekend i think you're spot on he's the guy to do it i love the ambiance he's creating it sounds like he'll have a couple live podcasts there inclusive distances many events showcasing the best of the trails and you're not just going there to race you're going there to 
take in Im- imbibe the rest of the the best of the culture so yeah and hang out in mammoth right like what what an excuse to go there and then i've always been i mean it's hard to find the data on this but i'm always curious to see what kind of impact these races have on the greater economy like in any given weekend when you bring a race to town how helpful is it for the local airbnbs and the restaurants and the running stores and stuff yeah. like that and it's mammoth trail fest is in october right I think it's early it's either late september or early october yeah okay so that that totally makes sense for filling the gap of the slow season in a mountain town like summer's over like mammoth is pretty big you know mountain biking hiking just tourist community but it hasn't snowed yet so you know there's that's i mean that's their huge revenue driver yeah. in mammoth is the snow they're you know they're hitting the spot in the late fall where it's great to put on a trail race and the town isn't already going to be to full capacity because that's another problem if you know if tim's putting on this race i don't know if mammoth gets completely full during the summer but like if he was trying to put it on during the winter when it's everything's already full mm-hmm. You, you can't fit more people. So, I mean, I feel like he's probably paid attention to that and hit the right spot of the year as well for good, you know, reliable weather and, you know, accessibility from a, you know, place to stay kind of standpoint right. with the hotels not all being full and Airbnbs being available. Yeah. Um, that's really important. Yeah. Amen. Well, for listeners, we have two free entries to the event to give away. So, I think we'll do it. Whoa, that's news to me. Yeah, we've got two free entries to give away. Tim is a generous dude. And I think we'll do something on Instagram next week. So the week of May 9th, we'll do some sort of giveaway. Check our Instagram stories. It's just run single track. And yeah, so anyways, I think we're both in agreement. Cool event. It's cool to finally see Mammoth get some love in the event space. And it's cool to do it during the shoulder season as well. Do you want to talk about this? article that involved i think it's all about the impact of super shoes on the road running scene especially pro runners in that scene and i think we'll ultimately because this is a trail audience we'll ultimately try to tie it back to our ultra running space yeah so it was an outside meg article and it was there the title of it is how super shoes are upending running sponsorship model and kind of to summarize the article kind of in two different pieces it was mainly about the most recent boston marathon and how the top american man the american women at boston neither of them had a sponsor because they had both chosen to either opt out or not renew their contracts with their prior sponsors essentially so they could gamble on themselves with the best equipment possible which you know the idea behind that is create more leverage for yourself for a future contract. Um, they both went about it a slightly different way, just coming from different uh, situations with their prior contracts. Um, but it's something that's never really happened before where kind of really like all the, sh- prior to super shoes existing, all the running, all the racing shoes were the same. Um, they were hard, lightweight, low to the ground. And if you had the genetics to uh, not get hurt over the course of a marathon, you could have, you could wear the light shoes and you'd be fast and then and then beyond that it's just how much a shoe company is going to pay you but then as nike i'm calling nike the first one to make super shoes hoka did not make super shoes first hoka made high cushion shoes but they were not super yeah. um nike is the first one to put super shoes on these people and it's like changing the game you know not only because you do 
race a little bit faster. You know, you get a couple seconds per mile um, from the foam and how the carbon plate works and all this stuff. But one of the biggest benefits of the super shoes when training for a marathon is that you're going to stay way healthier. You don't get as trashed on the roads with them. And as you know, if you're a pro athlete and you get to wear them for as many, as much of your running as you want, you have no super shoe budget, being able to add another workout a week or making the sessions a little bit longer and the recovery being better. That is, this is why people are getting so fast. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's definitely not a level playing field yet. You know, some brands, you know, their, the tech in their shoes is still better than others. Um, Nike did it first and it was really bad between like 20, was it 2018 or 2017? They, they were kind of debuted on like secretly at the Rio Olympics in 2016 on Kipchoge had a pair, Galen Rupp had a pair. Actually, I think the whole men's podium had a pair. Um, but then the first Vaporfly just like broke the entire racing shoe model. Um, and then even prior to the Boston in the 2020 Olympic trials marathon, Jake Riley, who got second and made an Olympic team, he purposely did not sign any contracts until after the race because he knew Nike was like Nike had already told everyone if you want to wear well, they basically said, we make the best shoe. We want it to be fair. So anyone who wants a pair that's racing the race can have a pair. We will have, uh, we have a, you know, a banquet hall full of alpha flies. And Jake Riley knew that was going to happen. He did not sign any contracts because he wanted to wear the best shoes, gamble on himself, make sure that he had, you know, as level of a playing field as possible with the other Nike athletes, made the Olympic team, his you know, contract value went up hugely. And then he got to ink a fat contract with on running after that. Um, and, you know, that's probably a kind of a position where Scott Fobble and Nell Rojas are uh, after, you know, essentially turning down like pretty big bonus right. money for being in the top 10 at Boston. Um, you know, they got some prize money, but they didn't get any sponsor bonus money. There's yeah. a great quote in the article. Uh, the author says, in essence, the fastest times these days are being run for free, which I thought was very interesting. And it talk it basically all plays into this great dilemma on the road scene where if you're being sponsored by one of these brands with the best shoes, you're probably running for less money. And the trade-off is you could go to one of these other inferior brands with inferior shoe technology and get more money. So you're, it's a trade-off. Are you going to uh, prioritize mm-hmm. results or are you going to prioritize financial security as a professional athlete, which is very interesting. Yeah, that's a pretty crappy decision to have to make. Um, I do think it's getting the playing fields getting more level. I mean, Nike's always been kind of the early adopter with new tech, whether it's spikes on the track or, you know, new fancy shoes. They've always been that company to push, uh, push that limit in, in regards to footwear. And it's always been kind of an arms race with the other uh, companies, but you know, like Adidas and New Balance and Asics, their super shoes are just as good. Um, they just don't have the best athletes signed. So they now seem not as good. Um, 
Yeah, in the in the article it said Nell Rojas, she parted ways with Adidas after just a few months because the shoes didn't work for her. And I think that's super unfortunate because like why didn't Adidas try harder to make the shoes work for her if she was the last Boston in October, she was the top American. They know she's really good. Why is this why is her sponsor company not trying harder to make the shoes work right. for her? That's ridiculous right. to me. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, we just had Lee Sackett on the show, who I want to say is like a product manager for the Brooks Blue Line Innovation Team. So he's working with a lot of their yeah. elite athletes, and the way he paints the picture, they're in constant contact with what's his name, Josh? Is it Josh Kerr? Josh Kerr, yeah. Josh Kerr, and, and all those guys and girls, and they're in constant communication, constant tweaking, constant making sure that things are working in that area. So it's just very interesting. One thing I wanted to mention is the the article doesn't really come to any conclusions on what the solution is here, at least in my opinion. I think they ask a rhetorical question, what would happen if athletes weren't dependent on their shoe contracts for income? So they make the comparison with like how uh, Michael Phelps on the swim scene had Subway, the sandwich company yeah and then they say something totally. like scott fobble because he's a burrito guy he could partner with chipotle and i think even josh cox one of the agents in the sport or could have been someone oh, yeah. else said get this guy a chipotle sponsorship yeah same with like coors bank uh, <laughs> which i see i do see this as an opportunity for american running to finally get rid of the traditional contract model of if you're going to go pro and running you have the option of like one of six potential employers um like in japan where running is much more popular and there's a lot more money in it you see you know japanese runners across their singlet it says toshiba it says subaru it says freaking nissan which is not nissan but nissan like cup noodles like sponsors that do not make footwear but know that there is value in the branding from these runners so they pay them like how is like yeah like how is like ford or coors or like apple not sponsoring someone and then they can just wear whatever shoes they want like there's some opportunity it reminds me of nascar and like the talladega nights movie one day we'll see on the runner's singlet like i run for pop tarts jiffy peanut butter and tesla you know, just like think of all these like yeah. totally random non-endemic sponsors. That could be us one day. Oh, yeah. Like, like how amazing would it have been for like Grant Fisher to break the American record in the 10K with just a full on KFC yeah. jersey? Yeah. Well, it also points. There's another issue here. Maybe we can save this for another episode. But a lot of sponsorship dollars appear to be moving away from people that are focused on performance towards more of like the culture makers, the social media influencers. And there's that frustration that's spelled out a bit in the article as well. That's interesting. But one thing I wanted to ask you, do you think, given your knowledge of the shoe tech scene, is this an issue at all in trails right now? Like if you're a sponsored athlete, do you want to go to one of one or two brands in our sport? Or is the tech across the scene pretty equal and there's not really like a hierarchy that's going to put you at a disadvantage? I think there's a lot more um, kind of variability in regards to like, I don't think there's any one best sponsor. I think there might be one best sponsor for you, Finn, for the type of running you want to do and like the racing that you do. Um, 
But like, like I think it's amazing that like Jared Hazen went from Hoka to Solomon without a hiccup. Like he ran in Hoka's for like six years, and like I see pictures all the race. Like he's wearing the speed goat, and then at Canyons he's wearing the Pulsar soft ground, which is like a third as thick, and like he's he's got some you know biomechanical uh, luck <laughs> strength. I don't know what it is on his side. <laughs> yes to to be able to just make that switch um but like those are things that i would be paying attention to if i was you know trying to find a footwear sponsor for trail running and i don't think that's necessarily because one brand's better than the other it might be that like one brand might be a little bit better than the other for this particular race like what you know what might be the best shoe for sierra zanal Mm -hmm or the Mont Blanc Marathon versus Western States. Like, does Hoka make both those shoes? Maybe, maybe not. Does Solomon make both those shoes? Maybe, maybe not. Like, they're definitely trying to. Um, so that, that in a way, kind of levels the playing field out for these shoe sponsors. And I think they're just, um, we're a couple years behind in terms of, like, what a trail super shoe is. Um, I don't really think there's any... But that's any coming. Yeah. It's definitely, yeah, there's some cool stuff in the works, but the problem is it has to work um, and it has to be better. Like they figured it out on the roads. Like if you get a really light springy foam and throw a carbon plate in it to keep the whole shoe together, that's, that's the recipe for faster marathons. That does not exist yet for trail because there's a lot of different types of trail out there. Like all the road marathons that people run fast on, they're all the same. Like they're flat and they're road. Um, like the super shoe for Western states is not going to be the super shoe for UTMB or, you know, hard rock or something like that. So it's, we, we, we might see this weird, well, and then I don't know, like thinking from like the shoe brand standpoint, I'm not going to put that much research dollars into making the perfect hard rock shoe. And there's like a hundred people that run it each year. Um, so then we might just get a whole bunch of all right trail shoes forever. I'm going to insert a controversial opinion here. There no, has been a Western States super shoe that has already existed. It's called the Ultra Duo, which has been inexplicably discontinued by that brand. Responsible for many great I mean, Western States performances. I mean, if that is the Western States super shoe, then the original Hoka Clifton came first <laughs> because it's the same thing. <laughs> They were even, I remember when the duo came out, they launched it in the exact same color as the original Clifton. I love that shoe, man. I'm so sad it's gone. Um, all right. Let's stay on the same topic of athlete sponsorship here. I'm going to read this tweet to yeah. you. Peter Bromka, he is a writer in the running scene. He pulled a Tim Tollefson quote from somewhere. I actually talked with Tim about this and I'm not sure if it was totally in context, but Anyways, he said, quote, we don't get paid to run. We get paid to tell stories about running, end quote. And then Peter says, I think more pro runners should frame their careers by this philosophy. Take this wherever you want. What do you think about this quote? And then Peter's thoughts. I mean, with, with how the current model works of, you know, what you need to do as a, like a professional athlete to make a living. 
unless you are the the one person who's winning worlds or winning gold, everyone else does have the responsibility of like creating, like making their own story, which I think that really sucks. Um, you know, I've, I've definitely, I know a lot of distance runners and a lot of them are like pretty quiet, introverted people who just want to go train or run in the mountains. And like, it's not their lane to bring a GoPro with a selfie stick and like do all this media stuff. And like, I think a lot of that falls on the responsibility of their sponsors. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm just going to like only kind of keep this in the sponsored athlete. Cause if you're not sponsored, then like you need, you need to be a hustler That's for right. sure. But if you're, if you're sponsored, like why is any of these companies, I mean, we can like all of them, why are they not sending a media person or a team just driving around the country or flying around to where all of their pro athletes live to just get a little bit of content occasionally from time to time leading up to their races. Um, you know, provide the athlete with some pictures or video that they can put on their own Instagram. Now the company gets their own, you know, pictures and video that they can do whatever they want with. They can start building that story more. Um, I feel like that's just, that just seems like a no brainer to me for brand building. All of these companies can afford a couple media people and fly them around. I mean, I know how much money these companies spend just on like tech reps and sales reps and like the amount of travel that they have to do just to sell shoes at, uh, you know, shoe stores. Like these companies have the money for that. It blows my mind. I think that that is the obvious immediate term solution because yeah, I think that the typical runner, regardless of where they are in the sport, whether they're front of the pack, back of the pack, middle of the pack, they're probably introverted people. <clears throat> I guess just to play devil's advocate, whenever I hear pro athletes express frustration with the system or they push back on the system, my first question is always, what were you expecting? Like you're joining a marketing team. Your job is to be a pretty public person. It's to tell stories. It's to be relatively transparent about what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. It's to document your work. It's to interact with fans. It's to create brand awareness. It's to create new followers of the sport and you. So should they even be mad in that sense that the system isn't working for them? Then at the very minimum, like, where where's the PR agent just at least telling them what to do? Yeah. It's so difficult to have to think of all the ideas yourself. Yeah. Um, like, I mean, I'd get, like, I'd get anxiety just thinking about the fact, like, if, if, if like, Solomon was like, Brett, you got to get, like, you know, three Instagram posts a week up and, like, do some stories about your training and your running. That would affect my training because now I'm thinking about, like, oh, gosh, I got to, like, go run somewhere cool or at least like use a whole day to stage like a fake photo shoot by myself. But like if there is at least just a PR person to be like, we need you to be at this race or, you know, try and take this picture. Like we're doing this theme, like this is our go to market strategy for the shoe. And like, this is what we need. And it's like, Oh, thank you for letting me not have to think of the idea. I would, I would say one more thing. And I think you've already said it in similar words, but as a sponsored athlete, you are on the hook to be interesting. 
But I also think that every single yeah. person is interesting. If you dig deep enough, they're all interesting. And I also reject the idea that athletes have to be anything other than themselves. I don't think that that's the issue here. I think that the issue is a willingness to be themselves in public. I don't think that the brands are asking athletes to be something that they're not. I think a lot of them would be happy if they followed what I call the document, don't just create philosophy, where you're just opening up about what you do on a day-to-day basis as a runner. And there's a lot of good people that do that. I think Sage Canada, for example, he puts out videos that aren't honestly that high quality, but it's a really awesome look into what he eats for breakfast every day and his workouts on treadmills and playing music and stuff like that. Like it doesn't have to be this higher production thing either. If they're not going to send the marketing team to them, which I agree with you, they should do get a GoPro in front of you, hit record and just show what you're totally. doing. <laughs> yeah, I know it's like even as uninteresting as you might think that is, it's uninteresting to you because you do that every day. But to someone else trying to be like, how did Sage get so good at running? To be like, oh, he doesn't do anything crazy. He just like is consistent. He works hard. He eats food like a normal person. And he does regular human things. Oh, that's like, like that's cool yeah. to see. Yeah. What do you think about this? And I'll say one more thing that I think might be controversial, but in my opinion, in very rare circumstances, are you helping the brand simply by being competitive? Like there are a ton of fast runners out there. I think running fast was commoditized a long time ago. In my opinion, you're being paid to, to differentiate the company, to help them have a feeling angle on, on the, on the sport. Would you say that that's about yeah, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, I mean, there should, there needs to be like a, I don't know, like there needs to be some sort of grasp and interest, like unless this person is simply blowing every single record out of the water, like, but even that, like it's, even that today is not quite doing it. Like, like our, our friend who just broke the Shasta FKTs and Mount Hood, like, why is that not on the front page of ESPN? You might find this interesting. I was just listening to a podcast with Sage, by the way, and he was telling the story about why he was inspired to take his talents to trail running. He was at, I think it was the running event back in 2012 or 2013. With This was back when he was with uh, Brooks, the Hanson's Distance Project. Mm-hmm. And they were at like this PR event and he was sitting next to Brian Sell. And if you don't know who Brian Sell is, he ran like 210 back in the early 2010s. And Scott Jurek was there too. And all the fans yeah. at the event wanted to go talk with Scott Jurek. Nobody even really? recognized who Brian Sell was. And Sage is like, how do you not know who Brian Sell is, but everybody knows who Scott Jerk is? And I mean, Scott was obviously talented, but I just think that there's like a mystique around the sport too. And I'm, I'm saying this because I think that if you're a sponsored trail athlete, you have another advantage in running, which is being in an area of running, which is like the most interesting area of running too, by virtue of where you run and all that stuff. So anyways, just thought I'd share that. Yeah, I hope... Uh... Yeah, I hope the entire like media model for trail running, like it doesn't have to go down the same avenue that road and track did. Like we don't have to be confined by five brands and you know, being all secretive. Um, you know, it can be a little bit more like conversational, which is 
I mean, a lot of brands like Hoka, Hoka has done a great job of really grasping on the grassroots style marketing. They understand that you need to be, you can't just be on TV or on the internet. You have to be at events and like, you know, talk to people and shake hands and, you know, and their athletes do, a, they do a good job of that. And that's one of the cool things about trail running um, is is that you can just like at the end of the race, just like walk up to Jim and be like, Hey, we just ran the same course at like the exact same time, like on the same day. And like, you could just talk about the race and like, you could have a conversation with like the best trail runner in the world. And like, that just doesn't happen in track or, you know, road racing. Oh, cool. That was good. I feel like we had, we covered some good ground there on, uh, sponsorship and shoe tech and stuff like that do you want to talk about this blog post that killian Jornet published i think about a week ago yeah yeah totally why don't you kind of paint the picture on this one a little bit because i did for the uh super shoes article well for the record you did an excellent job summarizing that last article i might butcher this a little bit but basically killian writes this blog post acknowledging what we've been talking about on this show for quite a while which is from a competition standpoint in our sport it is very confusing to be a pro athlete because for example there are multiple championship events for races of the same distance on similar terrain across the world so anyways he uses this blog post to do an exercise that first delineates sport and discipline so to illustrate this Usain Bolt and Francois Dane are both runners but they practice two different disciplines in running. Usain Bolt is a 100-meter guy. Francois Dane is a mountain 100-miler, and he uses that to create further disciplines within trail running, so over distance, terrain, circuit, etc. He also points out because the sport is growing, the structures and whatnot around competitions are changing and they're growing in number and it's confusing like i just said to have races of the same distance and the same terrain claiming to be the championship so for example you've got the world mountain running cup you've got the golden trail world series you've got the sky runner world series and you have the spartan trail world championships and they all overlap in terms of being short to middle distance trail category with relatively similar technicality he also mentions you have national federation championships like that world athletics cup then you have private championships like what utmb and xterra and spartan have put on so he's just doing an exercise to outline why we're confused and what exists out there and what overlaps he doesn't really have a call to action or an opinion i think he says at the end of Mm -hmm. the instagram post on it that he personally puts the most value on individual races versus any particular series or championship out there. And I'd say that that's pretty representative of where most folks in our sport are. I think most folks probably care the most about a singular race like Western States versus the the greater golden ticket series or stuff like that. Um, But he doesn't make any, he doesn't give any call to actions for like, we should consolidate competition and create clear championships for each distance and event. I think he's just showing what exists. So that's a long rambling answer, but that was basically the extent of it. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on it. Yeah. I mean, I, it's funny. Like I had been aware of all of these races and like the cups and stuff, but I never really like decided to like do what he did and like 
throw them all out on one piece of paper just to show how much of a mess it really is. And yeah, I mean, he didn't say it, but like, it is a nightmare. And and yeah, the end result is at the moment, the there is no championship because they're all championships and you shouldn't be allowed to use that word unless you are the actual championship, which they all think they are. Uh, but then, you know, like Killian said, like, then you play, you place the emphasis on the race that you think is the most important. And it's never a series or an entire, you know, cup, like getting points. It's like, there are a handful full of like, kind of iconic races that if you win one of those, that's a bigger deal than, you know, probably saying you've won a world championship in one of these other races but it's like well Sierra's and all last year was more competitive than any of the world championships or like you know western states or UTMB was more competitive than I don't know if there's actually a hundred mile world championship but like you know the, the list goes on for just some of these individual races and it's like is the sport putting just too much emphasis on trying to create a world championship or should there be one and everyone's just doing it completely wrong? The first thing I'll say, and this goes back to what you mentioned when we were talking about Tim Tollefson's new Mammoth Trail Fest, this might be part of the reason why races have their moments for these 10 to 15 year stretches and then things change because things are in such flux and there's no permanency or really rule of order that's been established. Just given the culture at any given moment, Certain athletes might care about, for example, the Wasatch 100 because it's part of this mm-hmm. Montreal Ultra Cup. But then that goes out of business or that sponsor pulls out and is less involved in the sport and so things change. And maybe races do have a place to stay in the sport and a certain role to play for a very long period of time when we start to consolidate and put official titles on things and police the word championship more. Yeah, and like I'm not the one thing I I guess I have an opinion on. I guess I don't have too many, but I'm not sure a private entity like Solomon or Hoka or like Iron Man is the right person to be the one to buy the world championship because then it's just like a money thing. Like it's only it's like as if there was a neutral governing body um like maybe the International Olympic Committee to help organize an event, say like once every few years where the best runners in the world come and represent their country in a championship format and maybe it has a rotating venue like that does that sound familiar i'm calling it the berlin wall of ultra running because it's just going to dilute the competition anytime you have brands in my opinion trying to buy the rights to championships they're going to incentivize their particular athletes to participate which makes sense but then you'll probably see competing brands do something similar they'll create their own championships and their own circuits and as a result these athletes will never see each other or they rarely will they'll never compete against each other and it's such a missed opportunity yeah can we just get it in the olympics first and then like figure out the other world championship part later like can't we just have like a long trail event and a short trail event and then wherever the olympics are like the courses are going to be crazy and super different which is going to make it 
very exciting because, I mean, gosh, if you ever had a back-to-back long trail Olympic champion, they would probably just be like one of the most versatile trail runners out there. I forgot to tell you that the same way you wrote your final paper in school on starting a running store, I wrote my entrance essay to business school on the feasibility of getting mountain ultra trail running in the Olympics during the Salt Lake Games in 2034. So, yeah, see, that's because every like Olympic host gets to test out a new sport, exactly, or an event of some sort. Because like like Schemo is going into the next next winter or two winter yeah. Olympics from now. Um, yeah, like let's let's throw a hundred k trail race like i don't even care if it's uh you know six 10k laps on a trail that's easy to cover and the better you cover it the more exciting it's going to be you want to talk about sound running and tracklandia and what they do in the road running world and why what they do might be interesting at some point for our sport yeah so it's just it's a new business model in the track world. It's def- it's more of a track thing than road thing. Um, but they started Tracklandia and Sound Running, where these two companies, I don't even know if they were companies really, they became them now. They, um, they started putting up these pop-up track meets during the pandemic because a lot of these professional athletes couldn't travel to the meets because the meets didn't exist. But a lot of them still had these insane race obligations where like, you had to raise six times in 2020 or your pay was going to get cut. And some of the brands were like, oh yeah, we understand there's no races. And other brands were like, well, you better like do some sort of publicity stunt to race. So this company, what they did was they started doing these like speakeasy track meets where they notified the pros who needed a race and they would, you know, get the officials there, the official timing. So it was all legit. Like if someone broke a world record, mm-hmm. it would count. Um, you know, like proper drug testing was there, all the stuff that it is to make a track meet. But what they would not do is tell any fans where it was because there, at the time there wasn't allowed to have any fans show up. So they just would announce on their page, like there's a meet this Friday, stream it live. And it was the, most of them were at random high schools in Oregon, um, usually in like kind of the Portland area. Um, but it was really cool and it gave people something to watch. And then it grew from there because they started doing such a good job at hosting these races and putting on these really professional live streams that they figured maybe it would be a nice idea to, instead of make the stream free, charge just a couple bucks as like a pay-per-view sort of model. And their idea behind that was to then fund the prize purses for the actual races. Cause most track races, there is no money. If you win, um, you might get a bonus from your sponsor if you hit a certain time or if you win, say like the Olympic trials, but most of these tune up races, there's no money for them. So sound running was full transparent with their pay-per-view models said like, we have this many employees and all these volunteers, these sponsors have kicked in this much to sponsor each event. Um, because their meet doesn't have like a title sponsor. Like it's not Nike. Each event is like the Gooder Women's 800, the On Running 1500, so on and so forth. They're like, if we sell 2,000 tickets, the meet breaks even. Anything over 2,000 pay-per-view tickets goes straight to buffing the prize purses for these fields. And I just thought like the first thing that came to mind was like Aravipa's Desert Solstice. 
that stream is so good and they do such a good job of covering that meat that I think they've earned the right to be able to charge a few dollars for the stream to help out the athletes and the runners that are actually going there. Because there's a lot of very, like that's a very competitive race. And I don't, there's, there's not enough prize money there. Like these people, like you get a thousand dollars for running a 12 hour, hundred miler. That's like dollars per hour. You can do better elsewhere. And like, you know, having a live stream like this could, it could really help with the sport as a whole. So I am such a fan of this. And when you brought it to my attention, I was blown away. I think we both agree. It's a harder model to apply in the trail world, but we have some forms of ultra running that make sense. So you, you recommended putting desert solstice behind a paywall, for example, my idea was to do pop-up VKs. So we could pick like a local mountain in each marquee trail town so like green mountain in boulder grandeur in salt lake tam in san francisco eldon in flagstaff tiger in seattle i don't know what it is in ashland what is it in ashland so we don't really actually have anything steep enough to be like a vk i mean then like our hill climb is the mount ashland hill climb that's 13 miles long and climbs 5400 feet um so we're kind of the like long and gradual we don't we don't got super stuff there's one like 25 minutes south of ashland though that's a true vk but i think with vks the course is short enough the length of the event is short enough the scenery the ambience is captivating enough where it would make sense people would want to tune in and yeah there would just be fan engagement so and then i like the idea that like all these different brands can sponsor the events too so i don't know maybe the single track podcast maybe the long run archives could sponsor a pop-up vk coming up yeah exactly or like i mean and then i mean i threw it out there on i think one of the reels that you had put on instagram was like maybe sound running should put up a pop-up 50 mile on the track like um like do an elite 50 mile where you know on Saturday, you have the 20 best women duke it out for 50 miles in a ladies-only race. And then on Sunday, you do the same thing with the guys and make it two separate races, two full world record assaults, yeah, bring in some fan engagement from the track world and also bring in some from the you know, ultra side of the world and then maybe even get a little bit of overlap with the athletes. I mean, like, there's some pretty cool, like, battles that i would love to see over 50 miles i love it between marathon and ultra marathon runners i think that's a great overlap distance and i would absolutely pay and oh i guess i never really said what like so there is i guess we're recording it on friday may 6th there's actually a sound running track meet tonight um and it's the pay-per-view ticket costs six dollars like I'm sure when I said pay-per-view, a lot of people are thinking like UFC fighting, like it's like 150 bucks on direct TV, but it's $6. Do they do any pre and post coverage too? So the comparison I'm thinking of is like on ESPN with college football, you have college game day, which starts three hours before the slate of games and they're doing like hype and whatnot and analysis. I don't, they don't have anything live going. Um, so like I know their stream goes live at I think 510 pacific time uh this evening but they've done they've published the fields for all their events um like i've known about this meet for like maybe a month now and like and then they keep adding people too so like the olympic gold medalist in the 1500 
is racing the 5K at a pop-up meet in Southern California tonight. Like, Jakob Ingebrigtsen will probably get a thirty dollars or $40,000 appearance fee just for racing the Prefontaine yeah. Classic. And he just won it in on this race because it's a good field and it's fun. I'm on their website right now. I want to read this. Sound running events are the best way we know to give back to the sport and community. Our goal is to provide more opportunities for pro and developing athletes each year with a better event product, more prize money, and always putting the athletes and fans first. It goes on, but that's awesome. I know. Isn't it so cool? And they wanted to create more like pretty high octane racing opportunities in the U.S. That was the other thing that the whole point of the pop-up means because all the best runners in the world, they go race like the yeah. Diamond League circuit, which is mostly in Europe. I mean, there's one stop here and it's in Eugene at the Prefontaine Classic. But other than that, it's like you're going to Europe and they don't let people in. They only do one heat. You know, like if you're right out of college and you're not quite to that level of the upper echelon of professional yet, it's hard to get good racing mm. opportunities. Um, and this company has done an awesome job of creating, just creating that opportunity. We talked last archives episode about the Montreal cup, how 10 years ago there might've been more opportunities for pro ultra runners to make it financially in our sport. It sounds like mm -hmm. this is one more creative way for track men and women to do it. Is that relatively true? Yeah, definitely. And like they, they've, pretty much only done it on the distance side of things just because that's what the kind of creators of sound running and tracklandia know and that's what they're you know that's what they know to put on the best and i'm sure in their grander model is more events but from like you know the 800 and up they've done such a cool job of creating more opportunity like even in the 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 B heat of the 5k tonight on the men's side. Like it's not the fastest heat, but the next fastest there's two high schoolers in the race. Um, like the two best high schoolers in the nation get to throw down with the best college people and a bunch of pros because these kids are just winning every single race they do. And that's kind of a little bit boring for them. Like they, they now have an opportunity to like mix it up with people who are better than them. Um, and that's, that's an opportunity that that doesn't happen that often either. You normally have to wait until like way after the school year for, for them to do that as high schoolers. And like, that's timing wise. That's really this hard. Is super. I'm, I'm glad we came across this and talked about it. Let's talk about Western States because the fields are set. Yes. The final golden ticket has finally been, uh, accepted by Mr. Adam Peterman. He has made the decision to go all in on Western States, which, yeah, makes makes the field set. And uh, I think this is going to be a really cool year on both the men's and women's side. There's, I don't know, like, I don't know if it's just me having, like, I feel like I pay attention to it a lot every year. And it just, it's a little bit different this year. There's a lot of kind of rookies, a lot of Western States rookies who could potentially run really well or blow up in an extravagant fashion. And that's exciting. Not to put, well, yeah, to put you on the spot, sorry. Who's contending for the win on the men's side, in your opinion? Jared Hazen. Um, oh, my keyboard turned off. I was just going to pull up the entrance list right now. Um, like, Jared, I, like his goal, I mean, he said, like, his goal is, like, win Western States. Um, you know, I'm sure 
Tyler Green, he will be wearing M2 on his bib because he got second last year. And with no gym, on paper, he is the fastest returner from the previous year. So you got Tyler. And then and then you have like some of the new people like Adam Peterman. Like he's never run a 100-miler. But gosh, I mean, he's hard to bet against even with even having never done the distance. He's just crushed everything that he's done. Um, and then was uh, yeah, I gotta pull this up. Well, well um, who do you what do you who excites you for this year? Tim Tollefson. For many reasons, Tim Tollefson and Hayden Hawks. Yeah, I think those two excite totally. me the most. Then, I'm actually pretty confident that Jared's gonna have a great race. I am curious to see because I personally think I know that we're gonna do a whole preview episode on Western States. But I'm really curious to know exactly what time it's going to take to win the race. I know it's always weather dependent, but I I think it's going to be definitely under 15 hours. And I'm just curious to see if Tim and Hayden can can do that. Yeah, I know that's a huge ask. Like there there's not there hasn't been that many sub 15s at Western States. Like we've just been spoiled the last five years, and we just think that's the regular winning time now. But like breaking 15 hours is nuts. Um, I was going to say, on the lady side, I just didn't want to say it without confirming, but like, I think I'm really excited that Courtney DeWalter is lining up for oh, States she is. this year. Yeah. Oh, wow. I think she's doing the, the Western States Hard Rock okay. double. That's right. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. She's doing the States Hard Rock double. And like, I was just looking at her splits from, cause she, did she win it in 2018? 19? No, she DNF'd 19, right? No, yeah, 2019. Maybe it was 2017. 18. Oh, let me see here. Oh, wow, she's yeah, done a she lot of races. Yeah, she through. Uh, it was 28. Yeah, she did win. She won in 2018, the year you right. and I both ran. 17, 17 27. Um, that was very good. But in 2019, the year that she had that hip problem, I was looking at her splits and like, it seemed like a pretty, like, it was an, I mean, because that, that year was cooler and it was faster, but like, she made an assault on the course record on that year. And like, I, I, I just think it was so cool that she attempted to just try and hit all of like sub 17 hour splits. Um, so that just has me really excited for what she might try uh, this year. Yeah, I think I have to imagine she's going there not just to win, but to get the course record. Yeah, and like, you know, that's definitely one of those things too where it's like, yeah, the weather is going to be very dependent on it. Um, And yeah, there's so many things that take the time out of the trail race. But if the stars ever do align where you get on the start line healthy and you do get to pay attention a little bit more to the time, like that only just adds to the the drama of the race. We're definitely going to do a significant comprehensive Western States preview episode. I'm guessing sometime in mid June. I know you're running too. So it's exciting times, but uh, yeah. Yeah. Let's close up here. Let's do our Strava finds of the week. Should I go first? Yeah. What do you got? All right. My Strava find of the week is the one and only Jack Kenzel who, 
as you've said, as Ryan Gelfi has said, is the best athlete in the United States that no one knows about. He's been on the podcast. I think it was episode 16 or 17. So if you haven't listened to it, go back and check it out. He's, in addition to being a great athlete, he's got a lot of interesting views on the sport, just a good thinker in general. But just go and look at his Strava because he's one of those guys that doesn't post daily activities. He just posts these massive FKTs that he gets. So his Strava is just like blips on the radar with every single blip being just like something insane. And he just recently took the car to car Mount Hood round trip on skis. He's got the Mount Shasta ascent record, which friend of the podcast, friend of both of us, Ryan Gelfie once had, he beat Ryan's time by nine minutes. And Ryan is a great athlete. So that's impressive. If you go to the East coast, he has he either holds or has had the White Mountains Hut Traverse, the Pemi Loop, the Prezi Traverse. I think he's doing the White Mountains 100 this summer, which follows the Appalachian oh. Trail uh, from the Vermont, New Hampshire border to the Maine, New Hampshire border. It's, it's amazing. It's, it has the profile yeah. of a UTMB. And then he has told me that he might actually take a crack at, at UTMB one day, that that interests him. So, again... We're going to link to him in the show notes. Like We're going to link to all this other stuff. He is just an incredible athlete. He's one of those guys that falls under the radar because he's just not in a scene that gets that much media coverage. But he could be one of those guys where it's like, you know, he's doing his thing, then he pops onto the race scene, and people are like, who is this guy? Where did he come from? And if you listen to this podcast, you're getting the intel. He's, he, you should, he shouldn't surprise you. He's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty pretty phenomenal i mean so like i mean this just kind of popped in my head like the the, the marketing brain is just always going i'm like if i am at outside mag and i have just recently acquired fastestknowntime.com you bet your ass that i'm gonna get some media people following him around because like i'm sure outside has some fastest known time like docuseries tv show multiple episode you know follow of this this is the guy like if you work for outside mag or have any affiliation with fastest known time. This is the guy to just jumpstart your Netflix series on because they, they, you have outside mate. You got you got that VC funding. You got them deep pockets. Like throw throw this dude a, a camera crew. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I'm trying to I'm gonna pull up the quote here. Uh, let's see. Give me one second because he fits the bill in so many ways. Like. I want to say he also lives out of his camper van too. So basically what he does on a day-to-day basis is he travels the country. He finds the mountains that are inspiring to him in that particular moment. He lives and breathes them for weeks on end. He does his major objectives. And then when the work is done, he goes to the next region of the country. And it... He does it like a climber. He does. It, like, it reminds me of like Valley Uprising, which is a great movie on Netflix. Go check it out. It's about Yosemite Valley, but for trail running. And uh, it reminds me of that yeah. Jack Kerouac quote. Like I, quote, I see a vision of a great rucksack revolution of, you know, these young Americans just like getting up from the, uh, you know, the boredom of their desk jobs and going out and doing stuff exciting. And Jack like has that sort of like, I get like the beatnik vibe from him. He's, he's very interesting that way. And anyways, I, I bring all that mm-hmm. up because... Yeah, if I'm a content marketer at Outside or FKT or any of these brands, like, yeah, I'm, I'm sending my video crews out there immediately and I'm embedding with him and I'm living with him for just to like get it all on film to document it. And the guy's in his prime right now. So 
what the hell go do it i want to get, get like i want i want to get like yeah. these outdoor industry publication content marketers on the podcast just to like i want to know how they think about creating content and strategizing and what's important and what resonates i think there's it'd be an interesting conversation oh yeah absolutely i would love to kind of get in the heads of some of these high up marketing teams at you know these big media conglomerates and be like what the hell are you people thinking <laughs> all right anyways jack kenzel uh, J-A-C-K, last name Kenzel, K-U-E-N-Z-L-E. We'll link to it all in the show notes, but you heard it here. Maybe not first, but don't forget it from here. Who is your Strava find of the week? So this one's from, I think, maybe two weeks ago now. Um, it's Ultra Runner uh, from Lithuania, Alexander Sorokin. His, he just broke the 100K world record. Um, he did it on the track, but it was the fastest under any conditions um in regards to like you know a legal sanctioned race um i think it ended up coming out to like 550 pace or just a hair under for 62 miles and he has it on strava and he puts all his training on strava and like it i mean so i looked at the race and i looked at the splits and i was just like oh my gosh this dude is bananas i mean he went out at I think like right at world record pace um, or maybe even a hair slower. And he was running like metronome, just like low 550s, high 540s for the first 40 miles. And then all of a sudden at mile 42, I think just about every single mile from then to the finish was under 540. He just knocked down like 10 to 15 Mm. seconds a mile after four hours of running and just such a violent pace change and then just held it normally like you see that for one mile at mile 42 i'm like oh he's gonna explode for sure but then he just was like nope this is my new gear i'm I'm just gonna hold 538s now for the next 20 miles of this run um which led me to then dig into like that's actually getting pretty fast because he's run the 100 mile and 24 hour and 12 hour world records, which those I've kind of put into one particular class, but now he's getting to the point of like, like two, like, yeah, like we're, we're running under six minute pace for a good amount. Like now I'm starting to think like, what could he run? Like, could he run 215 in the marathon? Because if you're running that fast for a hundred K, I mean, the, the last one to do that was like Jim. And then he went and ran like 214. I'm like, is this Alexander Sorokin guy? Like, does, is he actually, could he just go represent Lithuania in the Olympics and he just doesn't realize it? Um, his training block for the race, though, I just want oh, to like, do. speak please about do. it for like, just like one minute because it's so impressive. He did his entire last stint, like, which it makes sense. Where do all the best runners in the world train? Like, you go to Kenya. So he was in like E10. Kenya, you know, training in the exact same places that like uh, Eliud Kipchoge trains, and he just did nothing but, you know, eat, sleep, and and run. And you know, he put up pictures, and like I don't, I think most of the people there were training for track or marathon, and he was kind of the crazy ultra guy. But his like his biggest week, and it wasn't an outlier week; it was the biggest week by a few miles. But most of his weeks were in the 150 to 160 mile range 
per week. But he did have one week though that was 192 miles. And it wasn't just 192 miles of jogging. It was structured like an elite marathoner would, but everything was just amplified by a factor of like 5,000%. You know, he had five runs where they were like between 20 and 30 miles. Two of them were at six minute pace, which, you know, is actually just a little bit slower than his 100K pace. But then he had a hard track workout, you know, a 30 mile easy long run day, five six to seven mile shakeout doubles, and then four weightlifting sessions. Like, it is unbelievable the amount of work that this dude is able to put in without breaking. This seems like the perfect candidate for one of those uh, sweat elite YouTube videos. Yes, I want to. I want to follow him. For and a maybe session. we also get him on the podcast somehow. I don't know if his English is good, but yeah, his ability to bounce back from each session is amazing. Oh yeah, that was the other part I forgot. Um, he's up at seven to eight thousand feet on rolling dirt roads for every single one of these runs. Like he still was getting like eight to ten thousand <laughs> feet of climbing in a week too at at altitude. Like so, then then it makes actually the race performance make sense. I'm like, oh, judging by those workouts, yeah, I would actually expect you to break the hundred k world record. Well. Fascinating. Like I said, this will probably be the biggest show notes page we've had on the podcast to date, but we'll link all this there. Yeah, I, I think we covered a lot of good ground. Um, like I said, we'll definitely be back for the Western States preview episode, but we'll probably do another one of these later this month or early next as well. Um, any other thoughts you want to leave the audience with before we go? I mean, let us know what you thought of like any of these talking points like agree disagree like did we not expand enough on some things or do you wish we had gone a different direction with something else like or is there anything that you just want to hear me and finn you know riff about cool well as we like to say on the show that's a perfect place to put a pin in it we'll be back soon thanks for listening thanks for uh tuning in and uh yeah we like doing these so we'll keep we'll keep rolling on talk to you next time brett Right. Hey folks, thanks as always for listening. If you enjoyed the conversation, all I ask is that you give it a share on your social media platforms and that you leave a rating or review wherever you listen to this podcast. Until next time, this is The Single Track and I am your host, Finn Melanson.